All right, here's the word of the Lord. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. Well, do you have any questions or... Are you good? <laughs> nice. Sometimes the Bible's pretty strange, and this is one of those times. Like, imagine if I just tried to play this off as, this was, as though this was something you should already, like, totally be on board with. Like, you know how the fallen angels slept with the human women, and they created a race of giant warrior kings? <laughs> like, that's what's going on here. I'm told I can be out of touch, but even I know that there needs to be some context to this story. Um, it's important to note that this would not have been strange uh, to the original audience back when Genesis uh, was written. They would have known exactly what the scriptures are talking about here, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. But since we're reading this cross-culturally, we're modern American readers, and this is ancient Hebrew primeval history, we have to interpret it in order for it to make sense. So, by way of introduction, I want to just give you a few, what I'm going to call keys, that will help the truth of Scripture, like, come into vivid focus for you. And before I do that, I think it'd be helpful for you to have just, like, a basic plot of today's passage. So, here we go. In about one minute, the plot of Genesis 4 through 6. Uh, we're living in a world that has been deeply corrupted by evil and, and, and sin, and the story that began just a few chapters ago in the garden, which is full of delight and beauty and loving union with God, has very sadly quickly unraveled because of human rebellion into chaos and violence. So Cain, the, first, the firstborn of Adam and Eve, he kills his brother in a jealous rage. We talked about that last week. And then rather than turning back to God, which God still gave him the option to do, by the way, Cain continues down the road of rebellion against him. He has children of his own, and things progress until there's a whole civilization or a city that's like a counterfeit Garden of Eden where Cain and his tribe are trying to make things work without God's help. But there's still hope for us, and there's hope for the world as well because God gave Adam and Eve another son named Seth, who we just read about. And Seth is calling on the name of the Lord. That's hugely important. We'll talk about that in a minute. And some of his lineage, like 
Enoch and Noah are, quote, walking with God. Now, at the same time, the serpent from chapter 3 and his cohort of spiritual powers are joining in the rebellion against God, and they're doing their part to destroy God's good world. So God sees all of this corruption and all of this evil, and he decides to act. He comes up with a plan to stop the violence and to purify the earth. And because he's merciful and because he wants to keep his promise to redeem us, he preserves the line of Seth through Noah and his family. And then God begins again the project of making everyone flourish in his love. How you doing? There you go. Uh, Genesis 4 through 6 in about a minute. Um, okay, but how do, we, how, do we get, how do we get there? Because for, for many of us, reading the Bible still feels a lot like an unsolved puzzle like this. There's like an overwhelming pile of pieces and they look like they could go together, but it's not really clear how they go together. And it's also not clear what the puzzle is trying to show either. Is it a boat? Is it a plane? Is it a cityscape? What are we looking at here? So what do you need if you're wanting to start making the puzzle? You need the box with the picture on the front of it And then at least you know what you're trying to piece together. And until you have that picture, you're still just kind of guessing. Okay, maybe that's a nose or maybe it's a flower. I don't know what it is. But then once you have the picture, then you typically, you can tell. Oh, it's probably like that horse's nose or something like that, right? I feel like all of my metaphors are a dead giveaway that I'm a dad right now because... (laughs) We're working on a lot of puzzles in our house right now. We're just like trying to, I'm trying to convince Judah that the best way to do puzzles is to do the, like the outer edge pieces first, and it's like a battle every time. But anyways, so if we're going to understand the complex and confusing parts of Scripture and why they matter for us, then we need the whole picture, or we need um, what some scholars will call like a paradigm for reading the scripture and then how it all pieces together. So here's the point. We need to have in our mind's eye what some theologians will call the meta-narrative of scripture. The meta-narrative of scripture. So um, the meta-narrative of scripture comes uh, from a way of reading the Bible that's called narrative or missional theology. And sometimes you'll hear people call this the story of God or something like that. And it's referring to the overarching plot of the message of the Bible as a whole. And if you're interested in learning more about this, which I highly recommend that you do, um, Dr. Christopher Wright, basically everything that he's written is super, super good. His book, The Mission of God, and more particularly, The Mission of God's People are fantastic as it relates to sort of being introduced to missional theology. Or you can just watch just about every video that the Bible Project has ever published because they do a really, really good job of sharing the meta-narrative. Their statement, if you watch their videos, is we believe that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. That's a super good, very simple description of that meta-narrative. And it's a good, good paradigm for reading the scripture. So once you have that clear paradigm for the story of God and narrative theology, then it's much easier to piece together the strange parts of the Bible and find their proper place. Like, oh, there's that weird little piece that at first you don't know where it's supposed to fit, and it's sort of out of focus, and it's shadowy or whatever, but it actually it belongs over there in, in the background. It belongs in the puzzle, definitely. The puzzle would be incomplete if it didn't have it, but the main focus or the main subject of the puzzle is what's front and center. Make sense? 
Okay. All right, so Genesis is integral uh, to shaping the meta-narrative because it's the first book of the Bible. And it's also filled with all of these really obscure details like the Nephilim, the mutant half-god warrior kings and stuff like that. But the focus of Genesis is what we're going to find as we go along through the book is on what God is doing to redeem the world that's infected with corruption and evil. The focus is not the Nephilim. The focus is what God is doing. Now, I know what I've said so far, none of it qualifies as like aspirational preaching. Like none of this you could like cut up and put on Instagram and it would trend. (laughs) I'm very, very clear on that. Talking about hermeneutical keys for reading ancient literature is not like hyping you up right now. I'm not that out of touch, but... um, why do we do it? Well, we, we, we study this stuff because my heart is for a church of resilient disciples who are making more disciples in a very secular sort of post-Christian age. And so for that, we need a robust theology. We need to study the word of the Lord. And we need to know how to study the word of the Lord for ourselves. And once we're able to do that, then we can sort of begin to spot the the story of God that's unfolding in the scriptures, actually unfolding in our lives as well. And if we're really focused, and if we're really persistent, we can even reorganize our lives in such a way that we are joining God in his story that's unfolding, which I think is the goal of scripture reading. It's joining God in what he's doing in the world. So these sermons in Genesis are very packed, and they're packed on purpose. And this is why, of course, I stop every six or eight minutes and just tell a self-deprecating joke, you know, just to give everybody a little break, and then we can dive back in. Actually, I was at this conference this week, which was incredible, and um, it was led by this um, Catholic priest named uh, Ronald Rollheiser. He's one of the greats of our era. And he wrote this great book called Sacred Fire. I got to go to this little conference, 120 people. And he's like one of these people. He's super heady, super academic, like almost three-hour long lectures. And he knew he needed to give everybody a mental break. But he wasn't like a joke teller. So he would like be in his notes, and then he would look up, and he could say, okay, a joke. And then he'd like read a joke. (laughs) Okay, back to it. And then he'd... (laughs) like borderline maybe Asperger's or something like that, but like fully, like I was in it. I was in it. It was amazing. Uh, so, so, okay, let's look at the text together. <laughs> I just did the same thing. Um, uh, notice the first piece of the puzzle is this, the line of Cain versus the line of Seth. So this is what the scripture says in Genesis 4. And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son, called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth also a son was born, and they called his name Enosh. Okay, let me tell you what I don't think that Eve is saying. I do not think that Eve is saying, Abel's dead. Now I've got Seth to replace Abel. As someone who has lost a couple of girls to miscarriage myself, I know from personal experience that this is not how it works. Judah, our son, who's five, he came after the twins died, and he's an incredible gift from God, but he doesn't replace Hope and Brielle. And this week, we're actually celebrating their birthday. They'll be turning eight today, and, or not today, but this week. And there's still just a lot of, of sadness and pain that we feel around their death. We wish that they were here, running around with the rest of our kids, making a mess and everything else, causing trouble. And I know that there are many of you here in the room who've experienced some form of infant loss or some kind of grief, and you feel the exact same way, that there is uh, deep, deep pain that follows you in your story. 
So what is Eve talking about? If, he's not just talk, if she's not just talking about replacing Abel, what is she talking about? Well, she's talking about God's promise to bring redemption through her womb. In Genesis 3, verse 15, we stated this a few weeks ago, God curses the serpent, and when he curses the serpent, the seed of the woman will crush your head. That's the language there. So in other words, evil and the kingdom of darkness is going to be defeated through a godly hero who's going to come from Eve's womb. And in theology, we call this the Proto-Evangelium. This is the first mention of the good news that salvation is coming, and salvation's coming through Eve's womb. So she's got two, two sons, Cain and Abel. Maybe one of them will crush the serpent, except that's not the story. It's zero for two, right? Because Abel's dead, and Cain is corrupt. Cain's a part of the problem. And instead of repenting like God gave him the opportunity to do, now Cain is doubling down on his rebellion. And sadly, his line of descendants are following his lead. They're following in his footsteps. For example, one of Cain's great-grandsons is a guy named Lamech. And he writes this poem famously. And in his poem, he's bragging about being a polygamist and dominating his enemies through violence. So the corruption is getting worse. Corruption is getting worse. Cain was conflicted and he was in agony over his sin. We see Cain is a very conflicted character, still without the wisdom to trust in God, but just a few generations later, down his line, his descendants are proud and gloating about their sin. And I believe we're seeing something very similar in our world today too. Like for example, it wasn't that long ago that things like sexual sin were things that people would sort of hide or keep to themselves or that they were slightly ashamed about. I'm not saying that's a good thing. That's how you should deal with sexual sin. I'm just saying that's what culture used to do. But now in modern culture, things like sexual sin are being celebrated. Sinful things like, like pornography and even prostitution in some circles are being elevated into like legitimate industry. Terms like porn star and stripper and prostitute, they're now being referred to as sex workers. And I'm told that the dating apps are filled with this kind of stuff. And things like this we used to be at least a little bit ashamed about, but now we're considering them like a form of female empowerment or an alternative brand of feminism in our culture. Now, I am not saying in any way that women are to blame for this. I think that men are responsible before God for exploiting women for their own sexual gratification. But the point is that this is the counterfeit garden. This is Cain's garden. Adam and Eve, they were naked and unashamed, you remember. But now in Cain's garden, there's perversion and corruption. And they're also unashamed. Right? This is where right is being called wrong and wrong is being called right. Essentially, what the Bible is trying to tell us here is that when we define good and evil for ourselves, it goes horribly wrong. It's harmful and it brings destruction to people who are made in God's image. So I'm not saying that we need to like re- return to like, like norms from the 1950s or something like that. But what I'm saying is that we need God and we need his kingdom to purify our hearts. That we need to actually trust in him and in, trust in his perfect wisdom. That we don't actually seek to go our own way, to find good and evil ourselves, but seek instead to trust in the Lord and his wisdom. So Cain's not the hero and it doesn't look like his line is, is, is looking good either. So this is why Eve is looking for Abel's successor. And the promise is that Seth is here. So Seth is God's way 
of God keeping his promise to Eve and the rest of humanity to bring a savior through his line. Bring a savior who's going to actually crush the head of the serpent. So this is why genealogy and lineage is so important in the Bible. We didn't read Genesis chapter 5 today because I'm not like trying to put you all to sleep. And if you read Genesis 5, it's, just, it's very good. But it's just, again, so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so and gave birth to so-and-so and gave birth to so-and-so. The entire chapter, which I understand does not make like super exciting reading material. But the preservation of Seth's godly line is extremely instrumental in both the mission of God and the meta-narrative of Scripture. So genealogy is one way of showing how God is keeping his promise to crush the head of the snake through Eve, through her womb, through Seth, through Noah, through Abraham, and Judah, and Jacob, and eventually Jesus. So essentially, we need to understand these kinds of truths, or why they're at least there in the Bible, because it teaches us to hope again. It's actually okay for us to hope again, because God is keeping hope alive. When the world is being filled and perpetuated with all different types of evil, and the world is descending deeper into corruption, God is still creating good things. God is still creating good things in a world that's descending into evil. So we hope, and we actually have reason to hope, and I would actually say that people who are Jesus people and people who are wise, learned, uh, experienced Jesus people, learn to hope by choosing to pay attention to the right things. Like imagine if all you ever did was click on the clickbait, click on whatever's like scrolling through your feed right now, and you just be consumed with all of the negative information and all the negative stories that are being spun all over the world. It would bring you to a place of complete and utter despair, as it should. But those who hope in the Lord choose to pay attention to the right things. Things And then also we are able to then look at the things in our world that are evil, not bury our heads in the sands, but look at the thing, things in our world that are evil, and then to see them through the lens of God's promise and redemption. So we need a resilient hope, and we need that resilient hope that trusts in God when uh, there's a lot to be uh, sad about, or there's, a lot to, there's a lot of darkness. We, we need that resilient hope. So... Back to the story. How, how do we see Seth and his line? Or how is Seth's line different? This is critically important to get this. As we keep reading, we see in chapter 4, verse 26, that at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. They began to call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, they're beginning to sort of reclaim what was lost in the garden. Right? You've got... Seth and his line that are saying, you know what, we lost the, the, the goodness of the garden. We lost the intimacy and the love that we had with God there. And they're recognizing the importance of that relationship. And they're wanting to get back to it through honoring and worshiping him. So this, this verse, it marks a, a very important beginning. A significant shift, if you will, from the chaos and from the rebellion of Cain's line to the worship and the obedience of Seth's line. And notice that they're calling on God's name, or the name of the Lord. This is the Hebrew word um, Shem. Uh, the name is Shem. And it, and it refers to more than just like a person's given name. It actually encompasses their entire reputation, their character, and their identity. And it's used throughout the entire Old Testament to describe a person's honor or reputation or fame. So here are just, I just wanted to give you a couple very quick uh, examples of how calling on God's name is used in Scripture. First of all, we see this. Uh, calling upon God as an act of worship. 
as an act of worship. Psalm 86.5 says, You, Lord, are forgiving and good. You are abounding in love to all who call on you. Also, you can see Genesis 12 and Genesis 26 and Job 27 and 2 Timothy 2. Also, we see people calling upon God in time of need. I love Psalm 50. It says, call on me in in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. Also, Lamentations and 1 Samuel. In fact, as we were praying before the gathering started today, um, we had a couple of you who uh, just felt like God was saying that there are some here who are like in need of God's help in time of trouble and need to feel the closeness and the presence of God in time of need. And that's exactly what calling upon God's name is all about. We not This isn't figurative. This is literal. This is meant to be like clearly concrete. We call on the name of the Lord. Also, oh, by the way, on that note of calling on the name of the Lord, if you're a parent, again, all my examples are parent and now, uh, examples right now, but just roll with this. Um, you are regularly reminded that we need to call on the name of the Lord because uh, at all times in my house, someone is yelling, Dad, I need your help. There is never a moment where there's not someone, Dad, Dad, I need your help. And uh, it's just like our, our life right now, isn't it, Judah? Which is great. We love that. Okay. So... Um, um, so in the same way that our kids cry out for us or call out for us, Dad, I need your help. Mom, I need your help. We need to learn to be humble ourselves and to call out to God for help as well. Um, also, uh, you see people calling upon God for his salvation. In Acts chapter 2, verse 21, this is really the, the, the very beginning of the Apostle Peter's ministry. Right after Holy Spirit fills the church, he's preaching the good news. And he says this, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And there he's quoting Joel 2. So this is, my friends, how we experience our forgiveness of sin and welcome into the family. is by calling upon the name of the Lord. And by that way, trusting in his name to save. And finally, uh, we call on God to intercede for others. Psalm 99 and following. Also, 1 Samuel and Jeremiah 15. Samuel was one among those who called on his name. They called on the Lord and he answered them. So these are just a couple of examples. When you call on God, you can trust that he will answer you. Now, it is true that we don't always get to decide or determine what he answers or when he answers or how he answers, because, of course, that is all up to him, and that's up to his wisdom. The scripture describes him as being sovereign. He is the one who gets to call the shots. But when you call on your name, he has promised you that he will answer you. And I could give you story after story after story from my own life of how Calling on the name of the Lord in prayer has resulted in him answering my cry and my prayer. One kind of fun one is years ago, back before we planted the church, uh, we felt like the Lord was drawing us to this neighborhood. We wanted to plant in this neighborhood, and so we were doing lots of prayer walking, and we're just asking God to open up a space for us. But we had almost no money, and we had very few connections, and so the few people that we did know were kind of like laughing at us because we we had so little uh, but then there was a, a moment in time where a friend of mine uh, bumped into an elder from the former church that used to meet here a- in the hot tub at the Bend Athletic Club. I know it's kind of an odd, odd place to meet the guy, but that's, that's where they met. And they struck up a conversation about us and what we were doing and how we were, you know, some young families that were wanting to come together and, and gather and worship in Jesus' name here. And it just so turns out that that, that church, uh, First Christian Church of Bend, they were kind of 
20 or 30 people towards the end of their life as a church, and they were looking for someone to partner with and to hand the building off to. And that's us. They handed the building off to us, and we inherited the space, which is so cool. And it's actually really fun because there's a bunch of you who are here in the room the day that we got given the building. Uh, it was a really special day. Uh, but anyways, I tell that story at our uh, welcome lunch. Every time we have a welcome lunch, we tell a bit of our story, but I also want to know the stories of the people in, in the group. And so I would, before I told the story about the hot tub at the Bend Athletic Club, I was um, asking everyone else who was there, I'd say, well, tell us about yourself and what are your passions? What are the things you're uh, really passionate about? And how did you hear about Riverbend? And we got to this guy named uh, Tom, and, uh, and, and he's a really cool guy. And he, goes, um, and he goes, well, I heard about Riverbend. Actually, this was years ago. I overheard a conversation between two guys in the hot tub at the Bend Athletic Club. And I was like, wait a second. I was like, okay, this story has to end with you and I being friends because that is just the coolest full circle moment. Oh man, calling on the name of the Lord is an important uh, part of the Christian life and what it means to be in the line of Seth. So um, the line of Seth, they have this as their identifying mark. Their identifying mark. The thing that we learn about the line of Seth is those, they're the ones who are turning away from self-reliance, which is what Cain's all about. Cain's all about figuring it out himself, going further and further away from Eden. Now he's setting up a counterfeit garden. And, but the difference is with the line of Seth is they're actually turning back to God and saying, you know what, we're, we're not going to rely on ourselves. We're actually going to instead depend on you. We're calling upon the name of the Lord. That's what, it, that's what it refers to. Now, I would argue that things have not changed in the, modern, in the modern era. I believe that the same thing is true of us today. Are we the kinds of people who are going our own way, trying to define good and evil ourselves, trying to build a name for ourselves, or are we making a habit of calling on God's name, calling on the name of the Lord, turning to him instead of our own way? This is the question for your and my reflection today. So Seth's godly line it restores hope. There is still hope that God has not given up, that he, in spite of evil, he's still working. And later we learn about Enoch, a few generations later, who walked with God 300 years. And a few generations after that, we learn about Noah, who found favor with God. And this is what we see with the line of Seth. It's not saying that the line of Seth is perfect or that they're getting it all right, but they're trusting in the Lord, calling on his name, and staying close to Eden where the people of Cain's line are traveling further and further east. Now, as I was writing this message this week, I was thinking about those of you who maybe did not come from a godly line. I know that I did not come from a godly line either. Some of you might be starting to worry about who your father is or who your mother is. And let me reassure you, I, I didn't come from a godly line either. My dad um, comes from a line of a family of atheists. And he's a man of God, a great, great man of God, but um, he comes from a family of atheists. Actually, the, the, the emphatic kind of atheists that mock what we do here at Riverbend. And there may be uh, many of you who are in a similar position or a similar boat that, when it, that your, your life or your family line looks a lot more like Cain's family line than it does Seth's. There may be immorality or greed or hatred or all kinds of evil in your family line. And the message is still a message of hope. There is still good news for us because in parallel, 
with the godly line of Seth and family of God motif that's being developed here in Genesis is another very important motif in the scripture as well, which is this. The family of God, by its very nature and baked into its DNA, has its arms wide open to the stranger and to the orphan. This is paramount in the scripture. For example, Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 10, the people of Israel are commanded to show love to strangers by taking them in and giving them food and clothing. You know what the ancient world did to strangers? They either killed them or put them in slavery. But that's not at all what's happening with the people of God. The people of God are commanded to be generous and to offer them safe haven. Why is this the case? It's the case because this is what God is like. Psalm 68 says it. A father to the fatherless. A defender of the widows. A God is God in his holy dwelling. And God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing. This is what God is like, friends. Baked into the nature of God himself and his people is this heart to welcome the outsiders who want in. The outsider wants into God's family. They get in. So Cain and his line, they're not condemned because God condemned them or God rejected them. They're condemned because they rejected God. Remember Genesis 4-7, God says to Cain, why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? In other words, God is having his arms wide open to Cain to repent and give him a second chance and to trust in him all over again. If You do not do what is right. Will you not be accepted? And the New Testament completes this picture for us in in Ephesians chapter 2, for example, where it says this. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's own household. So this is the truth about who you are. Romans 8 says that through the Spirit we receive our adoption into sonship. And Romans 10 brings it completely uh, full circle in this. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter what line you come from. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, this is who your God is, friends. When you trust in him, he welcomes you in. He adopts you into his family. You belong with him. So the question is not what line were you born into. The question is which line are you living into? Not what you were born into, but what are you living into? Are you living into the line or the lifestyle of Cain that persists in rebellion? Or are you living into the line of Seth who calls on God and walks with him? That question is not meant for you to just kind of like let go in one ear and out the other. It's actually meant for you to wrestle through. Does your life look more obedient to the Lord this year than it does last year? Or are you still being pulled in the direction east of Eden towards Cain and his counterfeit garden? Wrestle that through. And then finally, we're almost done here. Finally, this brings us to the final little piece of the puzzle that we're going to fit into the meta-narrative today. And that is in chapter 6, the sons of God. The sons of God. This is what it says. When, the man, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And so they took as their wives any that they chose. And the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, 
So lots of different schools of thought on who the sons of God are. And obviously we're not going to go into depth on this today because we only have a couple more minutes. But I do want to give you the Cliff Notes version of this. Um, Again, we're wanting to build robust theology and resilient disciples. Uh, So some of this may still be a bit of a stretch to you. But the exact Hebrew construction, the sons of God, only occurs five times in the whole Bible. Here in Genesis 6, also Job 1 verse 6. The sons of God appear before the throne of heaven, and Satan is also there. This is sometimes, sometimes referred to in theology as the divine counsel. Also, Job 2, verse 1, same thing. Also, Job 38, similar deal. The Satan and the sons of God are appearing before God in heaven. And then finally, Daniel chapter 3, verse 25. There are these three prophets who are thrown into a furnace for re- refusing to, to worship the king of Babylon. And there in the fire, one appeared before them who looked like a, quote, son of God. So in each of these other cases, scholars agree that the term is referring to angels or spiritual beings. And that's most likely what the term is referring to here also in Genesis chapter 6. Now the reason why that's even questioned at all is because of how strange the story is and how wild it is. The sons of God are having sexual relations with the daughters of men. It's all very twisted and dark. So people, they quote Jesus who said, you know, angels don't marry. They also say, you know, angels don't have physical bodies, etc. or whatever. Now, it's important to remember, though, that when Jesus is talking about that, he's referring to the new creation. And actually, many times in the biblical story, angels appear and take on physical appearance. For example, Genesis 18, three men visit Abraham, and they eat together, and they hang out under a tree. They're doing physical things like that. It's only later that Abraham discovers that two of them were angels. Also, a couple chapters later, two angels visit Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. Trigger warning here, this stuff is kind of twisted. The men of Sodom show up at Lot's house and they pressure Lot to send the angels out. Why? Because the, the men of Sodom, they want to rape them. And Lot is very worried that that's exactly what will happen if he lets them out. So again, I'm not saying this is easy to process or that it's good. The Bible is not sanitized here. There is a lot of sexual abuse and just complete and utter darkness that are riddled throughout the pages of Scripture. And that's because the Bible is telling the story of humanity along with its evil, but it's majoring on and the emphasis is on God's redemption. So this is still very uh, strange to us. I, I, I get that. Um, not easy to process, but it is something that, that, that happens in the Bible multiple times where angels are taking on physical form. So here's how you'd probably understand this if you were an ancient reader. In the ancient world, they had in their mythology that empires were founded by these like larger-than-life, half-man, half-god warrior kings. And one example of these mythological beings is a god by the name of Gilgamesh. And here he is, um, pictured behind me. And you can see Gilgamesh is this huge figure, and he's uh, pictured with a lion around one arm and a snake, interesting, a snake in the other hand. And Gilgamesh, he founds Uruk, which was the precursor to the city of Babylon. And Babylon, we know in the Bible, is a powerful and corrupt rival empire to the kingdom of God. So if you were an ancient reader and you were studying Genesis 6, you'd be like making sense of your mythology here. 
These were powerful, violent empires that were rising up all around you, founded by Gilgamesh and other gods like him. Now, how did the half-man, half-god people, how did they come about? How did they come to exist? Well, Genesis 6 says that the evil spiritual beings, they, they sexually abused human women. They bore children who became the mighty men of renown. In other words, to us, they are very foreign. This idea of the Nephilim is very foreign. foreign. But they were well known to the original leader, readers. So the, the, the crazy thing for our modern, like, uh, sophisticated post-enlightenment kind of reading of the scripture is that the Bible doesn't even try to deny that these rival evil powers exist. The Bible actually confirms they exist. I already gave you a couple from Job, but also look at Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. So this is a major piece of the puzzle in the meta-narrative. The serpent and his cohort of evil are very present in the world, and they're the enemy. In Genesis 6, we're seeing this very tragic collusion between these spiritual forces and the line of Cain. They're actually colluding together against God and against his kingdom. So regardless of how you feel about the strangely sort of constructed ancient literature, the reality is that it's telling us the truth about evil in the world. There are dark powers in the world, and they are systemic. They're conspiring together with humanity. For example, humanity's greed, humanity's lust, humanity's love for power has entangled us with the evil forces in ways that just bring all kinds of violence to the human soul and devalue the Imago Dei. How many times in the last couple of years have you been reading about some atrocity unfolding in the news and wondered, like, man, has the world gone completely crazy? And the, the, the world of the Bible, the, the thought imagination of the Bible would say, yeah, the world's actually going mad because there are forces in play that humanity has aligned with and we have attached ourselves to that are conspiring to destroy us. Now, um, the, 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 like I said, Genesis 6 is not trying to pull any punches here. In fact, we're feeling like the intensity of humanity's evil con concentrating along with the evil of the spiritual powers. But remember what I said at the beginning. Hope is choosing to pay attention to the right things. Paul talks about this all the time, particularly in 2 Corinthians. He says, pay attention to the things that are unseen. The things that are unseen are eternal. The things that are seen are temporary. So look at the things in the world that are evil through the lens of God's promise and God's redemption. So here's what this means. As this final little piece of the puzzle kind of like finds its place in the meta narrative. yes, there is profound evil in the world. The Bible's not trying to hide from that. If anything, it's highlighting it. So there's profound evil in the world. But God sees it. He sees all of it. And he decides to act. Notice what it says in chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord regretted that he made humanity, made man on the earth, grieved him in his heart. He says, I will blot out man I've created from the face of the land, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So in no way is evil being hidden from God. God sees it. And God is patient with people's rebellion. We learned that a couple of weeks ago, that God is the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, bounding in love and faithfulness, quick to forgive. 
but he's not passive. So he's patient, but he's not passive. At a certain point, he says, enough evil is enough evil. See, now I'm bringing my judgment. Now, in this case, God's judgment means to like purify the earth and start anew. And trust me, I feel what you're feeling here too, or at least some of you are. I understand that in our culture, the idea of God bringing judgment seems a little bit harsh and a little bit strange. We get angsty reading scriptures like this. But in the biblical paradigm, judgment is a good thing. And God is the only one with the wisdom and the patience and the righteousness to be able to judge fairly. Revelation chapter 19 verse 2 says, true and just are his judgments. So God is not coming at this like he's angry and violent and retributive or something like that. Think about, it's helpful to think about it in these terms. Think about a good judge in our judicial system, a good judge, righteous judge in our judicial system. They're not sitting on the, on the, on the judge's seat and taking pleasure in handing down sentences to criminals. That's not why they're there. They're actually there to intervene and to take action on behalf of the victims. So you have to keep in mind that in a culture that is persisting in rebellion like Cain and his line, the rebelling against God, it's, this is not a victimless crime. People made in God's image are being repeatedly abused. In the violent world of Genesis 6, who's suffering? Well, it's, we know clearly that it's the women who are suffering. It's the marginalized who are suffering. There's polygamy. There's sexual abuse. The sons of God are taking for themselves wives. Uh, remember, God's good design had husbands and wives partnering together as co-heirs in the family of God. Husbands cherished their wives. But now we see the, the exact opposite. Women are being dominated because of their beauty by the sons of God. And so God is paying attention He's present. He sees it. And he's saying, I'll be patient. I'll offer forgiveness and mercy. I'll give time for that. But at a certain point, that's enough evil. And God brings justice to stop violence and to purify the earth. I think we would actually have a much bigger, bigger problem with a God who does not intervene on behalf of the victim. And we actually, I know many of you in this room have been victims of various forms of abuse, spiritual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. And it's important that you understand that God sees that. And there's mercy and there's forgiveness. Cain, after he killed his brother, was given an opportunity to be forgiven and to walk with God again. So there is that. But God loves you so much and loves you too much to allow you to go on as a victim without there being judgment and justice. So we need God's mercy. We need God's justice. And those of you who've been victimized by evil, you, your heart is crying out for justice, as it should. And God is saying, yeah, there's mercy, but I also bring judgment. The good news is that he's capable of doing it. He's wise enough to do it. And he's par impartial enough to do it. None of us are truly qualified for that, but God is wise and capable of doing it. That's what the scriptures say. And at the conclusion of all of this, I know there's lots of stuff that we've covered today. And there's lots of, uh, like, some of the gnarly, dirty, messy parts of Scripture we've covered today. But, again, the thread that is woven throughout this story and many others like it in the Bible. The puzzle piece that fits into the meta narrative that you need to be resolute on and focused on is that God is victorious. God brings his victory. Evil is no match for him. 
Nothing, the scriptures tell us in Proverbs and in the Psalms and Isaiah, nothing will be able to prevail over the Lord. Whatever evil or whatever danger comes our way, God will fulfill his promise to crush the head of the serpent. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's up to, and he has the power to do it. So through all of the evil and the the falling apart of the human story, the promise to bless the world and redeem the world through Seth's line, it still stands. Still stands. Don't forget about Seth. Don't forget about Noah. Don't forget about Enoch. Don't forget about Abraham. God is working in order to, in all of the mess, in all the madness, to bring victory so hope is alive. He's choosing to bless Noah. And we're going to be talking much more about that next week. So as we end here, I just want, uh, I want us to, to be the kinds of people who focus on the right things. Yes, let's, like, like the Bible does, let's take an honest, full look at the depravity and the evil that exists in our world. But then let's take, for every, every look that we, that we take towards the brokenness of humanity, let's take a hundred looks at the cross. Let's take a hundred looks at what God is doing to redeem it all. And we actually, our, our hope is resilient and is resurrected as we trust in him. So you might be here today and sort of like, man, I was not ready for the Nephilim talk. Like, is this what you all do here regularly at Riverbend? Well, we never back away from tough stuff like this. But, but um, you, you might be here just going, I was not, I was not ready for that. But my hope is that you um, have a deep sense that God is with you and that in spite of all of the mess and in spite of all of the evil that we experience in the world, that, that God is bringing his redemption. The question that we must wrestle through together is do you have that identifying mark at the line of, of Seth? The line of Seth who calls upon the name of the Lord. This was the habit. This was the thing that, that, that identified them. So we want to be the kinds of people who call upon the name of the Lord. Make this your daily rhythm. Make this your habit. Make this your heart cry. I was talking with a, uh, a gentleman after the last basics class. And uh, he, was, he was asking me some questions about, about this. How do we actually prioritize the Lord in the day? The simplest, the best way I know how is to give God the first word and the first moment of your morning. Every single day. Find yourself coming to a place of stillness and quiet and give God that first day or that first moment and then call upon the name of the Lord. Another invitation from the text is to not be deceived by the enemy. The biggest lie that the enemy has convinced our culture of is that he's not here. It's all just a myth, which is tragic. Now we have an enemy. He's present in the world. He's conspiring against your flourishing. But he doesn't have to win And he doesn't win when we trust in the Lord Jesus. Turn away from our self-righteousness. Instead, call upon the name of the Lord. Enoch, which we'll learn about later, he walked with God 300 years. And this is what we're being called to, is in, in the midst of everything, to walk closely and walk humbly with God. Let's stand and let's pray together.